Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forest Church Podcast, What It Means. We explore the major changes in this market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today is Nigel Fennick, Vice President and Principal Analyst at Forrester, to talk about probably one of the most important dynamics facing us in the marketplace, which is how do traditional companies act like disruptors and, and truly innovate their business? Welcome, Nigel. Glad to be here. So I'll start with that point, which is in almost all of the markets, disruption is now normal, and especially as it focuses on more digital disruption. How are traditional companies as themselves being disruptors? It's a, it's a great question. And, and to change the, the existing business, to innovate the existing business, we have to look at the problems we're facing, right? And there's a lot of disruption going on in the market, and a lot of it's driven by technology. But if you go back to Einstein and his quote that you, you can't solve the problems we have today with the same mindset we had when we created them, you have to figure out a way to change the mindset. So for many companies, it's not about bolting innovation onto the existing business. It's not necessarily about creating a startup in the existing business. It's about fundamentally looking at the business we're in today and do we understand how to change that to create value in new ways for customers. Very often using the technology, right? Where the technology is an enabler of new sources of revenue generation today. But it's it's how we think about that in terms of creating value and driving revenue that fundamentally have to change in most companies. We tend to be wedded to the business model we already have. Successful companies have grown up by understanding how to do something very well and turning that into revenue and, and giving value back to shareholders. When you ask them to rethink that model and do something very differently, that's kind of scary. So I just wanted to touch on this concept of a corporate ego, which is essentially what you just said, right? That collectively people are so emotionally invested in the business model they built or the products and solutions that they have today that they can't get beyond that emotional attachment to the work that they've already done. Yeah, it's a, it's a, I think it's an emotional attachment. We're all human beings. We get emotionally attached to things that we are invested in, right? But it's also... Uh, an understanding of, of things that we're comfortable with, right? We, we get comfortable with what we know how to do. Nobody comes to work wanting to do something they don't know how to do. Uh, highly innovative companies figure out ways of trying to break people free from that thinking. And it's changing the way we think about the relationship with the customer fundamentally. We're, we're not selling products. We're not selling services to the customer, what we have to be thinking about is we're helping the customer get to an outcome they value. Can we do that better? And that's that's different than thinking about can we build a better product. There's a clear concept that companies are well aware of the roads they've traveled. They understand what they achieved. In fact, that sort of describes why the leaders are in place and who those leaders are. But it's less clear what the road ahead looks like, especially now. So your, your point of reference is that to understand the road ahead, which may be very different, Keep it simple. Keep it at the kernel, which is what is the customer attempting to achieve and what is your role in that play? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really fundamentally about looking at the business from the outside in. But when you look at the, the business from the outside in, you have to remove the, the sort of the boundaries of the business and really truly look at what is the customer trying to get to? Whether you're selling to a business or to a consumer, you're selling to a human being. And in a B2B environment, it's a bit more complicated because you're selling to a person who's actually trying to take your product or service and then wrap it into something they're selling to somebody else. So you remove the boundaries of the existing business and say, look at all the different ways of delivering that outcome. How can we potentially use the capabilities that we are good at 
and expand on them with the emerging technologies that, that are around to be able to deliver the outcome that the customer values in a better way, in a different way. So this concept of thinking new, thinking with a blank sheet of paper, thinking in a blue sky way about what a customer is trying to achieve, in some cases that's sort of formed in, in future journey mapping. But achievement is different than the experiences I want to deliver. Achievement is the customer's terms of what they want to achieve, which might include me, the company. It might include the ecosystem, which I'm participating in. So it's, it's looking at the customer very, in a very clean way and empathizing with their forms of you know, what they want to achieve. Yeah, it's, it's the, the desired outcome they value. You think about just, say, the travel industry. And historically, airlines might look at a customer journey from when somebody wants to buy a ticket to, to when they get off the plane. But that's never the outcome the customer values. They don't value buying the ticket. Well, that's the transaction they have to go, right. go through right. to achieve what they want. Uh, and it's not getting on the plane and getting to the destination they value either. The thing is, it's the, the outcome is typically around, I'm going to have a successful business trip. Or I'm, you know, I'm taking my family on vacation. We want to have a great memorable, memorable vacation. That's the outcome. And you look at that as an outcome that, that's valued by the customer. There's a whole bunch of things that goes into delivering that outcome. The airline is just a small part of that. Right. But if you're an airline, you want to be thinking, can we, first of all, do we understand the outcomes all of our customers are trying to get to? And how can we better influence their ability to get to that outcome? And if we can, if we can create more influence with them in terms of their ability to get to the outcome, we create more brand loyalty, more brand affinity, and we, and we're likely to get a higher share of revenue of all the revenue that's going into towards getting that outcome. So, Nanja, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of common sense. But we also know that it's hard. It's hard for traditional companies that often pay homage to the past and have political capital baked into what, what has been. So where are companies in their ability to take that step? I really think it starts with, uh, and certainly in public companies, it starts with the board, right? The board uh, has to understand that the leader of the company has to actually understand what's going on right now. And this is a fundamental, fundamentally different in business environment than what we've seen in the last couple of hundred years. So I'm going to raise a concern, which is you hear more and more of traditional companies forming incubation teams, innovation teams, whatever way they want to phrase it. And they send them off into Silicon Valley, Boston, New York, some of the hotspot cities where there's a lot of talent and a natural innovation culture. What I, what I mean by that is they, they become an appendage to the company. They're something other. How should executives see that dynamic and take a lesson from it? Uh, it, it really does depend on the CEO understanding the importance of the technology changes that are driving value for the customer. And you can look at examples of companies that set up, if you go back to the dot-com boom, there were, there are, I'm not going to name them, but there are, there are companies, some very big retailers, who set up a separate dot-com division inside Silicon Valley. The, this is the other part. The they other part, right. Okay. They set up the, this sort of other the appendage, appendage yeah. right? It wasn't what they saw as core to their business. And they wake up 10 or 15 years later realizing that actually that is their business. Right? They can't do their business without that. And now they've got to try and figure out how do they actually reverse engineer and flow, flow all of that technology capability back into the company. They suddenly wake up and realize they needed to be a software company 10 years ago. Uh, it gets very expensive very quickly. And one of, the, one of the challenges for public companies is that they have shareholders that they're accountable to. And, and it takes a really gutsy CEO to sort of say, we're going to invest in this and, and, and not return the dividends to the street. 
Uh, and you just need to look at what's happened with GE this year and Jeff Immelt, right? I mean, they, they've invested billions in building GE Digital as an industrial IoT platform, right? And, and uh, you know, from a strategic perspective, I would say I, I've held Immelt up as being one of the CEOs who really, really understands the, the world of business has fundamentally changed. And he put GE on a path of transformation five, six years ago. And they extracted a lot of the value out of their operations using technology and plowed that money back into building GE Digital. His reward was he got removed, right? Because he couldn't get the profit back fast enough, right? So the challenge is GE may, may well be very successful at building that platform and generating a lot of revenue off, revenue off it in the future. They're not today. And, and so, you know, CEOs in large public companies have this challenge of I have, I have, I'm accountable to the street. And even if I understand that our strategy has to be different, I've still got to fund it somewhere, somehow. And if you don't have all of that industrial capacity that GE had to take billions out through technology, you've got to find it somewhere else, right? And, and so the opportunity to go to, say, build an accelerator and work with some of the incubators to accelerate some ideas outside of the company becomes much more attractive because it's less risky. Right? You, 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 you don't have to bank bet so much of the business on that working. Yeah, it almost goes to the systems of exploration where I build an ecosystem in part because I'm going to, to your point, I'm going to extract immediate value from it. But it's also my lab. It begins to be my R&D where I find out how things are done, how best to do it. Yeah, but doesn't this, the issue still exist, right? If you're you're funding this externally from your organization, you want to someday bring that back into your company. I mean, I've lived and breathed this with, with Nokia where they bought a services organization, right? Tried to fold it into a hardware business. That didn't go so well. That's a difficult thing to do. And that kind of goes back to your core point of changing the mindset. And that's a cultural shift too. Yeah, yeah and culture culture always gets in the way, right? So so this is why I keep coming back to the CEO, right? The CEO helps drive and define the culture of the organization. And they, and they do that in part through the metrics that they set for the executive team and how they measure and reward people across the company. You do see, to your point, Jen, that you you see companies buy up other companies, right? And I've, I've, heard, I've heard CEOs say, well, we bought this company because we wanted to get their culture. We like their culture and that we want to get that young dynamic energy that the, the, the software developers bring bring it into our company so we can help change the company. And and like you just watch this this young startup company culture wither and die on the vine because they're starved of of any nutrition because now they're in this big company competing for resources and nobody's paying them any attention, right? Yeah, one of the core roles that the CEO and CFO play is the allocation of resources. I mean, that's probably one of the most important strategic decisions. And companies are up against sort of the sunk cost fallacy, which is that I've invested in this business for X amount of years and Y amount of dollars. And I can't imagine taking that investment from that business and making and creating a new investment in whether that's the acquisition that you described or something else. So I start sort of rationalizing my investment in a sunk cost, thinking it's going to return something going forward when I know very well that if I allocate it elsewhere, I'll get a higher return, but later. So how much is that that issue of allocation playing out here? Allocation is huge, right? And, and this comes down to company structures as well. The P&Ls we have in most big companies today are built around product portfolios or, or, or even sort of ge geographic segments. And 
there's expertise in that and that, that works in terms of scaling efficiently, right? But what you have is now you have heads of those P&Ls who are accountable for delivering profitability to, to the company, and they're all competing for resources. And guess which are the, the most scarce resources they're competing for? Marketing and technology, right? And, and invariably, they're going to build up those, those capabilities inside their P&Ls because that way they don't have to compete for them outside. But the larger the P&L is often the larger the funding. So you sort of have that same problem of you're putting the most exactly. dollars behind what was or what is now but will not be going right. forward. They have the loudest voice, right? So mm-hmm. you talk to any CIO, any CMO and say, well, you know, who who do you end up providing the most support for if you're central services? And they're going to say, well, you know, the biggest P&Ls because they have the biggest voice. If we don't satisfy them, then, you know, we're out of a job. And that's that's part of the problem because oftentimes the places you need to invest that scarce technology resource isn't in the existing business. It's in the upcoming business, right? It's in the place where your revenue is going to come from in the future. So I want to turn back to a customer's ambitions or desire for achievement of something. I want to go home. I want to you know, a successful business trip, whatever that might be. So CX programs have been initiated to get a much better grip on what this really means from an existing journey mapping and future journey mapping standpoint. So you, you sort of reconcile the fact that CX created this experiential desire of the companies to, to deliver, but if the company is not ready to deliver that in the same way, if it needs to be restructured organizationally, operationally, new tech coming in, CX can only go so far to deliver experiences on the existing state of the business. And I think we're starting to see this CX plateau hit where the CX professionals have done a great job getting that premise in place. And they hit this wall saying, for me to go to the next step, the business has to fundamentally change. So are we starting to see that same tension sort of from the CX angle as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the, you know, CX really, we've for years focused on the low-hanging fruit. You know, fix existing customer journeys because there's a lot to fix, right? There's a lot of a lot of potential there to give great value for the customer by removing touch points, by making things simpler, getting them more engaged, creating a better outcome for the customer along their journey that the existing journey they have with us as a company. So that takes you so far. It, it does strike me that at, at one level, the customer is the fundamental disruptor of the market. And CX done well, fully representing the ambitions of the customer, is the fundamental internal disruptor. It is telling the company to, to optimize its shape based upon delivering the best possible outcome for customers in whatever role it plays. Yeah, it's, if you think about customer experience, uh, there's two ways of looking at it, right? You can look at improving the experience you have today and, and delivering a better experience for the customer. And when you look at customer experience in that lens, you, you could create, say, a better mobile app it doesn't actually create more value for the customer. So you've got to tie customer experience to perceived value, right? And and this is one of the dynamics that's driving big change and the speed of change today. I, I kind of refer to this as the digital dilemma. You have, if you put this in a mathematical formula, you have customer experience over expectations equals perceived value. And one customer's perceived value is going to be different from another because their expectations are different. But if they're all in balance, let's say you've got a value of 100 for the experience, 100 for the expectations, you have a perceived value of one. If you deliver an experience that's improved, your perceived value goes up. If you deliver an experience that stays the same, but expectations are, are going up. Which is really where we are. 
right, perceived value goes down, right? So companies have to constantly change the experience in order to be able to just maintain value. Yeah, I mean, that's an incredibly dynamic equation. It's not like right. you've accomplished one thing and you're like checking a box. But think how most companies invest in, in even, in even mm-hmm. customer experience. They say, okay, we've got a project. We're going to fund that project. And then we're going to figure out what we're going to invest in next. And, and customer experience isn't a project to be funded. It's, it's, a, it's a continuation. It's a continuous evolution. And so a fundamental change in the business model is moving from a business model that is designed to not change very quickly to one that's designed to constantly evolve. And, and that's a fundamental change in the way you structure a business today and the technology architecture you need to support it. Yeah, I mean, a premise of organizational design is stability, durability, and certainty, which is, you know, can it survive sort of the change management dynamic? But what you're arguing is the change management dynamic is the normal. Innovation will force me to rethink, take that blank sheet of paper you talked about earlier, and always have a blank sheet of paper on my desk ready to go because the customer might have changed expectations significantly or a disruptor has come in and coached the customer to think differently as we're starting to see in the banking sector, which is new codes are coming in and teaching customers that other things are possible that they never thought were possible. Yeah, and, and, and what I encourage people to do is always think about the what's the outcome the customer desires and keep that in mind. Not what product or service am I delivering today, but what's the outcome and how do I help them get there? So you mentioned banking. Well, so in financial services, if you're looking at sort of asset management and wealth creation, the outcome that many customers want is something around Wealth creation and stability, right? I have enough money to be able to have a comfortable life, live in, live comfortably in retirement, and cover healthcare costs or whatever. In other words, it's a concern around a lifestyle, uh, but it's the ability to drive wealth creation. Well, if that's the outcome that the customer wants, then everything you do is going to focus on how do we help the customer better create wealth? Yeah, just using that example, we had a podcast with Peter Watermaker who's sort of isolating on the millennials for a second. They under-index in terms of financial competency. They over-index in their interest in becoming smarter about financials. They're about to inherit the greatest transfer of wealth that we've ever seen, so they're going to become wealthy, so they're not as wise as they wish to be. They want to be wise. It sort of screams out for a whole set of advisory services associated with banking. Yeah, And, and you look at some of the progressive, even sort of traditional companies, um, companies like Fidelity Investments, we feature a lot in our research because they because they do they bring the customer in and talk to the customer about what is it they're trying to get to, and they're putting a lot of videos and how tos and things on their platform to help customers become more educated to become sort of self managing. So you're starting to see that shift. I want to get back to the innovation question for a second, which is a lot of what you're describing is sort of the premise behind design thinking. Is, is that sort of where you're going with this? or that, Because you're, it seems like there's two pieces you're talking about, which is a fundamental change in the leadership mindset and leadership actions that come from that mindset and the methodology of design thinking. Yeah, there's definitely, a, a, you know, design thinking's been around for years. And the fact is people were applying design thinking before design thinking became a cool thing to call it, right? The understanding of walking in the customer's shoes, having empathy for the customer, understanding what the customer's trying to do, and then trying to figure out how to solve that. And, you know, Steve Jobs was probably one of the greatest people at doing this, right? He's, you know, he always said, well, if I went and asked the customer what they wanted, they would have never said they wanted an, an iPod. So, Nigel, can you perhaps describe what good looks like today? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. We're actually at the early part of this transition when you think about changing business models and changing the way companies work. 
So John Padgett talked about changing the thinking at Carnival and, and becoming focused on creating that great memorable experience for their customers and, and changing the organizational structure and how hard that is inside the company. And that's just one part of Carnival, right? And being able to replicate that across the entire business is much harder. The same at GE, where you see the ability to take technology and create value for customers and think differently about the outcomes permeating the entire organization, but they're, they're wedded to the existing PL structure. It's very hard to tell right now what great looks like because so few companies are actually understanding the scale of change that needs to be done. You have companies like Amazon who, you know, admittedly are not delivering any returns on, on uh, shareholder investments. The stock price is going up nicely, but in terms of profits that are, that are trickling down to the bottom line, hard to tell. But they have a very different structure, right? They have a very different outcome in terms of the way they think about their business. But they were born as an innovator. I mean, that's that's their basic fabric of their culture. Part of the challenge of these other companies is that that's not how they were born. You look at Google, you look at Amazon, the, the CEOs, even, you know, Zappos, right? The CEOs have a different think, way of thinking about their business and how they think about the way they create value for customers and particularly how they use technology to deliver that value. And this talks to the CIO, I mean, very squarely, because the CIO has been the leader of the technology that makes the company go. But now is being asked or should be asked to make be the person who makes the technology work on behalf of the customer, the sort of dream big. Where's the CIO in this mix in your mind and how ready are they to take on this mantle? There's always been a percentage of CIOs that are really business savvy, that, are, that, are, that think they're business leaders first, technologists second. And what we've seen over the last five, six years is the balance shifting, right? So there's a shift much more towards those. Historically, there are about 20% of CIOs who were that business executive first, technologist second. To be an effective CIO today or chief digital officer, you have to understand how to create, drive revenue. You have to understand how to create value for customers and drive revenue out of technology. And... If that's, if that's the premise of being a successful CIO, the CIO needs to actually have the backing of a CEO who understands how important technology is to the business. So one question I have is, is the change you're describing, is that happening organically or is that because the CEO recognizes that, in, that important role digital or technology plays and is forcing or allowing or enabling or empowering, whatever verb you want to use, the CIO to play that role? It's, it's a little of both, right? So in some companies, you see a business-savvy CIO who's, who's really stepping up, right? They're, they're incubating digital, they're incubating digital thinking inside the company design thinking. And they are, they're starting these small projects, they're working with a CMO to get something going, to help show the business executives, the, the people who own the P&Ls, just what can be done. On the flip side, there's new CEOs who come in who who are brought in because they understand the importance of technology and they look around and say, okay, we need, we need a, a new CIO who understands this. Uh, and they bring in a new person, right? And sometimes they're a CIO, sometimes they might be called a chief digital officer, a chief technology officer, a chief innovation officer, you know, the, the whole load of chiefs. And, and sometimes they look at it and say, okay, you know, we need a new CMO as well because we, you know, the CMO doesn't understand how technology plays into creating value and delivering value for the customer. And we need both of those people. Um, and and so you see both of these playing out in the marketplace, but the net the net net is we're seeing a shift in in 
the capabilities that are required of the technology team inside the organization. Yeah, because the role is, is digital transformation is not sort of digitizing the business. It's using technology to transform the basic nature of the business to satisfy the customer. And that's a, that's a key tenet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so important. In you know, the last 20, 30 years, we focused on using technology to improve the efficiency of the business, yep. right, to drive money to the bottom line. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like I, I, one of the things I often say is you know, CIO will say, well, our CFO says we need to drop 5% off our cost. Right, we've got to reduce our IT budget by 5%. I think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting perspective. Do you think if I went to your CEO and said, if you invest an extra 10% in our technology budget, we can reduce our operating cost by 20% or we could increase our revenue by 50%, would they, would they tell you you couldn't spend the money? Chances are they would, right? They, 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 it's not that they don't want to invest in the technology. They've just got this paradigm in their head that, that we have a cost there that's on the on the bottom line that's affecting the bottom line and we need to reduce that cost. Yeah, it's an old way of thinking, right, being applied to today's dynamics. It's also it sort of connects something that hasn't been fully connected in the past, which is CIOs don't typically see themselves as requiring information about the end customer. Right, yeah. I mean, so, so customer insights is delivered to the CMO, but the CIO should be equally as curious about it because they're going to take real, to your point, they're going to take real action about the fundamental nature of technology or how the CIO apportions resources within their shop for a portfolio perspective to say, I'm going to put more money towards those business technologies that do deliver the top line or the operational gains. Yeah, and that's and that's what business savvy CIOs have always done, right? They've they've been as vested in understanding the customer as the CMO and the and the line of business leaders. They want to understand how does our business work? What, how do we create value? How do we drive revenue? How do I move, use technology to move the, the levers that that help drive more revenue, that that acquire new customers, that keep customers coming back? So we've talked a lot about the role of technology driving revenue, delivering, helping to deliver um, value to the customers, but does it change the architecture of the technology that organizations have today? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've built architectures, many of which haven't changed in 20 or 30 years, by the way, that were designed to drive operational efficiency. Now we have to think differently. We have to build an architecture that's designed to drive agility, speed of change, evolution. That's a very different kind of technology architecture. And by the way, it's not cheaper. It's more expensive. Right, so we have to think differently about the role of technology in, in driving revenue. So we started this podcast with the premise that traditional companies innovating is probably one of the most important dynamics playing out over the next two to three years. It's hard. There's a lot of things in the way. And the CEO plays or the board plays a central role in moving CX or digital from sort of on the veneer of the company to change in the very heartbeat of the company to sort of follow the customer's ambition. So what does it all mean to the senior leaders out there thinking about some of these deep-rooted and hard changes they have to take on to really evolve into this innovative world we live in? Okay, so really what it means is that, first of all, we have to think differently about the business. Right? We, we move from being product or service businesses to being software companies. We've talked about that, that every company is a software company. Every company is a technology company. As a technology company, we think about technology very differently. It's an asset we have to leverage to drive revenue. So we think about the company differently. We need to structure the company around customers, customer outcomes, not products or geographic regions. If we're thinking about structuring the company around customer outcomes, 
Now we can get everybody who's focused on a particular outcome around the same set of metrics. How do we drive influence in that outcome, drive market share, revenue, etc.? But the other real fundamental thing is when you look at the business and you understand all the capabilities you have in the business, 20 or 30 different capabilities inside a business at a high level, there's only three or four of those that are really differentiating in the minds of the customer. The customer buys from, from your company because of those differentiating capabilities. CEOs and the executive team have to double down on those capabilities. That's where you want to put your scarce resources. The, the flip side of that is you have to simplify the other 30 or so capabilities in the company. And that means to stop doing all of the changes that we've been doing for the last 30 years. This radical simplification of the rest of the business that doesn't differentiate in the minds of the customer is what enables you to drive operational efficiency and agility and focus on those things that really differentiate. This is a strategic board level question, at least an executive team question that has to be, or a dilemma that has to be solved because that requires you to change the investment strategy, change how you're investing the scarce resources, whether it's money, people, assets like technology, into those things that differentiate and create value for the customer. It's a, it's a, it's a rethink of that. It's not a let everybody compete for those resources in their P&Ls. It's strategically saying there's things we need to invest in and there's things that we have to simplify. Great, Nigel. Thank you so much for your time. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.